Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Sports Medicine on Tap. I'm Jason Kopeck coming to you from Neck of the Woods Brewing Company, as we do each and every Tuesday night, located inside the beautiful Total Turf Complex, South Jersey's sports and entertainment destination here in Pittman, New Jersey. I got Dr. Frey with me. Doc, how you doing? Great, as always. Uh, we had another great uh, topic for tonight and really a continuation of last week's episode. And we thought no better to bring back on uh, than Dr. Brad Bernardini. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Well, we were talking last week about ACL tears and, um, you know, we were talking about how the whole issue on rehabilitation could be its own episode. And uh, I think it was a few days later, Dr. Bernardini, you texted me and said, Let's strike while the iron's hot, right? Bring in the big guns. It worked well for the Fernando Tatis one-two episode. Why not repeat the uh, why not repeat the algorithm? Yeah. So therefore, we brought back uh, Jess Harrison, one of our physical therapists from the Energy Lab. Jess, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. I guess that speaks to maybe before we did an okay job. So let's do it again. Excellent. Yeah. Let's kick it off by just summarizing what we talked about. Um, you know, Dr. Frey, touch on the topics that we covered. We, we left it off at a very specific point. Um, recap for us, episode 14. Yeah, so we talked about uh, ACL tears, the two guys that were sort of our main um, springboard for conversation were Ronald Acuna Jr. as well as Dario Saric. And uh, two different sports. We talked about how the, the you know the injuries impacted them you know differently immediately. That Dario tried to play through it. That it, that was uh, kind of immediately the end for for Ronald. We went through a number of the different controversies associated with ACL reconstruction. Um, different types of grafts. Uh, some of the rehab. When do you get back? Um, you know what it could potentially mean for those particular athletes. And then we even went on to talk a little bit about the distinction between. Uh, ACL reconstruction versus ACL repair and how that could, you know, potentially impact what are the pluses and the minuses at this particular point in time, you know, is repair really a, a very good option. So, you know, we tried to go through a number of the different controversies. We went through a little bit of the basic anatomy, we went through, uh, you know, what an ACL actually does. And um, and that brings us, I think, to, to, to this week, which was one of the other topics was talking about, you know, physical therapy, trying to treat an ACL non-operatively. What does a rehab protocol or picture look like after someone has it reconstructed um, surgically? And uh, that, that leads us right into what we're talking about this week. I would, I would even say, let's take it back a step further and, and talk about uh, prevention programs. Heck yeah, sorry uh, I you know, I, no, I No, I don't think you did. I think you know we talked about the surgical part last, last week and you know, but now that we have Jess here and, um, you know, and Jason, you guys are very commonly on the um, side of, you know, seeing people who aren't necessarily surgical. You know, Steve and I see a lot of the uh, patients that, you know, have already been diagnosed with a tear and, and we opt to proceed with surgery. A lot of them are high, high demand and we decide that that's what they need. But I think, you know, the part that's really interesting to me is some of the science now that's uh, showing how effective ACL injury prevention programs can be. So, uh, Jess, if you want to kind of take the ball and run. Yeah, I mean, I think we'd definitely be remiss if we didn't touch on that because now there's an even bigger push to try to not just rehab after an injury or after a surgery, but to kind of start at the beginning and figure out how do we prevent that injury from happening. 
So teaching someone to be what I like to call pre-active instead of reactive. So really, when we're talking specifically about ACLs, uh, you really want to look at how someone is controlling their function through those tasks that they do that are specific to sport. So whether it's jumping and cutting, um, breaking down those movements and making sure that their eccentric control is optimal for their body type, where they're at age-wise, and also that specific activity. Yeah, and we so we talked about some of the things that uh, last week we talked about some of the body positions that people get in. There's a so-called provocative position, um, and you know, and that involves. Um, you know, relative knee extension. So, you know, the knees aren't flexed or bent enough upon landing from a jump. Um, you know, certain angles with foot and ankle, you know, landing on the heel instead of the foot. So could you talk about some yeah. of those things and how you think about, you know, maybe some of these important factors? <clears throat> the other thing we talked about was kind of a knock knee position as being a, you know, a potential risk factor for having someone sustain an ACL tear. Yeah. So. First and foremost, when you're talking about that knock-knee position, it's what we refer to as a knee valgus. So it's where the knee will come inward of either the hip and or the planted foot and ankle. So that's how you're looking at that individual. And typically when we see that, even though it's the knee that's drifting inward, we're typically looking above and below that joint in terms of what's causing that problem. So that can be kind of hard for people to understand when they come to see me for a prevention program, specifically for their knee. And really what I'm focusing on is the range of motion in their foot and ankle, because that's what helps control from the ground up, as well as the strength at the hip and even the trunk. So if you can picture someone who is landing on one leg, in order to control the knee, you need to make sure that your trunk isn't drifting. So if you see that their trunk is drifting over the outside of that leg, the knee is automatically gonna come in to try and maintain your center of mass over your basic support. So that's just a simple way to look at how trunk control can really affect the knee positioning. So your knee range of motion and your, so to speak, knee strength could be pristine, but you could still be at risk for an ACL tear if you don't have good control at your trunk and at your hip. So that's where we're looking at a specific trunk angles as well as the hip flexion angle when you're landing in a squat, whether it's double limb or single limb. Yeah, we see people come back all the time to us, or at least I do, and say, hey, uh, that therapist is working on the wrong part. You know, I <laughs> you sent me over there for my knee and they're working on my hip and, and we explain that to them often. And you, got, you we do a great job here of explaining that to them, but you know, very often maybe it's taken for granted by some of the you know sports um, therapists that are out there, you know that patients understand why and, and how we're doing things. So that's what I think is good about us talking about it now, so that we can help educate people. And another thing that I think might be important to know, and we will touch on some of the differences in literature a little bit later on when we get into post-surgical rehab. But I recently had someone come to me in terms of talking about a prevention program that focused mostly on quad strengthening, which used to be sort of the gold standard with knee-related injuries in ACL specific, making sure that you're very quad strong, quad dominant, and now we're actually seeing that switch. And that's not necessarily because people were wrong or incorrect in the past, but it's just because we're finally seeing this change in the research, and that research is finally carrying over into clinical practice. So now, instead of hearing, oh, we need to be quad dominant, you're hearing a lot more of like, we need to focus on your hip control, your posterior chain strength, what is your ankle mobility and range of motion, and the importance of the calf in those activities. Yeah, I think that's an important 
point you just made it, you know, there's some estimates out there, but about, you know, in medical literature, about 50% of what we know changes about every five years or so to some extent, you know, there's some modifications of what we know. So, you know, nothing that even now that we're talking about is written in stone and, and this stuff is always changing. I think that's what makes our field kind of interesting because, you know, we're always learning new things and you can't ever get too comfortable with what you know. And so I think it's great. So right now, you talk about quad strength, you know, historically that was always a, a measuring uh, kind of um, scale as far as, you know, if, if you've got 90% or greater quad strength, that makes you a good, you know, a successful rehab patient and you can move on with life. And, and now we found that quad dominance is actually a risk factor for ACL injuries. And, and we want to work on the posterior chain and the hip and like you mentioned. So I think that's a really interesting point for people to understand is, you know, if you did therapy five years ago, we may be doing completely different things now. And we likely are doing completely different yeah, things Yeah, and now. hopefully we are doing different things. Right. So that means that we're progressing forward and right. learning what works in a more optimal way. If anybody feels like they're a little bit lost, we encourage you to go back and listen to episode 14. I, I know we did a great job of talking everything about the ACL. Um, but Jess, one of the things that came up last week, uh, I think it was Dr. Frey that brought it up, but why don't you talk about the importance of what we call like the prehab aspect. So before surgery, um, especially from your standpoint, for somebody that's going to see the person immediately after surgery. Yeah. So prehab is going to be definitely different than our prevention program. So prehab is someone that's already had a confirmed tear. They're likely already scheduled for surgery. And now there's a couple reasons they might be coming to see me. Maybe they've delayed the surgery a little bit because the swelling in the knee is too extensive, which can put the new graft at risk post-op. So really the biggest thing that we're focusing on if you come to see me prehab is we're trying to reduce any edema or swelling in the knee to give that graft the best environment to heal and then become a good ACL as we rehab you. We're also looking to restore as much range of motion as we can, as well as strengthen you as best as we can prior to surgery. So we have different techniques we can use here in terms of addressing strength, like the blood flow restriction unit that allows us to strengthen you without having to put you in a weight-bearing position, depending on if there are any co-contaminant injuries. But the biggest thing is restoring range of motion. So full knee extension and as close to full knee flexion as we can. So we're talking about zero degrees of knee extension and 120 degrees of flexion. And that's exactly what Dr. Frey said. You know, everybody thinks it's the strengthening, but really it's the range of motion is right. the most important part of the prehab aspect. Obviously, we want to make sure you're not losing any strength before going into surgery, but if you're lacking range of motion going in, then we're already starting at a deficit when we see you after the surgery. Yeah, there's actually some literature that supports that if you go in with you know, we, we typically use this something called the limb symmetry index, which basically is, you know, how close are your limbs one side versus the other? And a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of uh, limb dominance or one side is, is more, you know, um, suited than the other to kind of sustain load or, um, you know, resist injury. And, you know, generally we want these knees to be greater than 90 percent, you know, the normal or the uninjured knee. And, and there's some interesting studies that show that if you go in with greater than 90% strength due to a good prehab program, that that actually has a direct correlation with patient reported satisfaction outcomes after surgery in a, up to about two years, which is kind of, you know, an interesting thing. And touching on that, 
touching on patient satisfaction, I also feel like that rehab component allows us that time to communicate with the patient really what to expect post-op. And I think some of that does help. It's huge. So while restoring the knee range of motion is optimal, you also are giving them that idea of I'm starting my rehab, I kind of know what to expect, I know what I'm getting myself into, and it kind of helps put them at ease a little bit because when you come out of that surgery you're in a locked brace and you pretty much feel like you don't have a usable leg and you can't really see the other side yeah. of that at that point i would have to imagine too that it gives you a chance to build that relationship with the patient rather than starting that process when they're at their worst coming back after surgery yeah, I, I would like to think so as well. I think for the most part, I'm pretty personable, but either way, that, that person already knows they have a torn ACL, so you right. could be seeing them on their worst day either or, but it does allow them that time to get used to you as a therapist and the environment, and knowing your environment for rehab is, is important, even though it's something that's relatively overlooked. It's a black box for them at this point, right? They, they just had this injury they don't know they have an idea of what to expect but they really don't know what they're in for they're not sure what they, they have an idea of what the reconstruction means and what that might look for, like for them afterwards but they don't really know right and, and it's, it's, it's a little bit scary not not really having a good understanding they don't know what therapy is going to look like they don't know what the like the whole situation what, what the environment is going to be like and as you start to knock down some of those unknowns that person starts to develop a certain level of comfort. Yeah. All right. I understand this. I can do this now. I understand the system. I understand. And, and it all starts to make sense. Yeah. And we talked about last week, we talked about some of the uh, new science now is coming out showing how important psychological factors are with recovery and how Especially that these, yeah. absolutely, you know, there's a couple concepts of locus of control, self-efficacy, all these things are really important for outcomes. And I think starting to establish a rapport with the therapist pre-op and starting to get a sense of, you know, I, I got this, you know, I, I see other people maybe in the rehab center that are maybe three months, two months out. And I look what they're doing. That's really cool. I'm going to get, I'm going to get this and I'm going to take care of it. And, uh, I feel like I am in control of this injury from a pre-op status. I think that's really important and it shows correlation with outcomes. Walk me through what's next, Dr. Bernadette. Where are we at in this process um, in terms of continuing this conversation? So surgery has happened. Is it? Do we talk about the different types of grafts again in terms of how that affects the rehab? Where, where are we at? Yeah, you know, I think uh, we probably are getting into the weeds if we talk about really the graft the weeds, yeah. choice. There are some subtle differences with like all soft tissue graft, which is like a hamstring or quad versus BTB, which has little chunks of bone on either end. Maybe a bigger distinction there between auto and aloe. But yeah, but, yeah, no. yeah that, that's also another, and we talked about that last week, you know, a graft source from the patient, graft source from, you know, a cadaver source. I, I think probably the important things and the things that I think, I, I, you know, are, are, would be important for people to hear is, what are the things that are safe for us to do and how do they correspond to the level of biological healing that is going on in that patient? So we talked about last time, you know, rough estimate of three months for the grafts to kind of bond into the into the bone tunnels, maybe a little faster with a BTB where there's bone chunks on either end. Um, but, what, you know, how do we, what's safe to do? What's been shown um, with regard to what kind of strength? You know, I know your goals early on are get rid of swelling um, pain control Extension. in that first week. So maybe talk about that first week mm -hmm. of what are your goals from a therapy standpoint? 
Yeah, so, and just so we're all on the same page listening, we were talking about strictly ACL tears because as Isolated you can tell, ACL. we can easily turn this like two episodes into six if we start to deviate <laughs> with yeah. additional injuries. So when we're talking about strictly ACL tear, that first visit you come to see me, a lot of what I'm doing is answering questions of what the patient has because now we're on that step of like, now we're on post-op care. And I think it's important to note that many times you'll see patients back before we will post-op, at least in, in my, on my you know experience. You know. Yeah, usually, because I believe you follow up with them about a week or so, and yeah, we try seven to, to get days. them in to their first PT visit prior to that. Right. Um, and typically there are exercises already in their post-op packet, which some of those exercises are ones that are pretty good across the board regardless of graph type, because you're gonna be in a locked knee brace. So the biggest thing that I'm looking at when you come to see me is what is your pain tolerance? What's the swelling like for the leg? And are you listening to post-op precautions? <laughs> there are so many people that come in with their brace unlocked, carrying their brace, which I will give you a lecture. That's Good. the biggest <laughs> Thank thing. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. You, you have to keep people in check because it's a long road. Right. So the biggest thing that we're looking at is reducing that swelling as quickly as we can because swelling is going to be an irritant to all of those tissues. New, meaning your new ACL graft, as well as existing. And so that's going to prevent us from activating those muscles properly. And even though we're talking about how quad dominance is not the new way of ACL, we still want to get that quad firing as soon as possible. So that's what also what I'm looking at during your first evaluation is how well can you contract the quad and how much pain do you get while doing that? And lots of times it's nothing. It's like mush. <laughs> Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. And Very I kind of have to reassure them that that unfortunately is a typical occurrence okay. after surgery. Uh, Get it back. And yes, we have a lot of exercises. We have a lot of techniques to bring that back. I'm going to be also looking at what comfortable passive range of motion can you go through. So passive range of motion is me moving your leg without you assisting me. Because again, depending on where that graft was taken from, if it's an auto graft. There are certain muscle contractions we just want to limit for those first few weeks until things start to heal down a little bit better. So the biggest thing on that first visit is, are you abiding by your post-op precautions? We're educating you on reducing swelling. We're starting that quad contraction, and we're getting you comfortable with starting to bear weight on the limb in a locked brace. Um, because when it's just a strict ACL tear, that's what we can safely start to do early on if you're abiding by the appropriate precautions. If there's an associated meniscal repair or oh something like that, oh boy, changes the protocol. <laughs> now he's complicated. All right, all right, all right. There's not I'm enough disk space on yeah. this car to record that conversation. Well, I, I oh, think it's important to note that, and, and Jess alluded to it, that you know, um, effusion or swelling in the knee has a direct correlation to quad inhibition and there's almost a reflex quad inhibition right. when you have a swollen knee and that's why it's so important for Jess to work on that. And it's kind of like if you try running in a pool, right? Like you have a lot more restriction running in a pool. So your knee is going to have a lot more restriction bending and straightening if it's filled with, with fluid, which essentially is what the swelling right. is. So Jess, you had mentioned uh, the patient's typically going back to see the surgeon within a week. So are you doing much else in that week other than reducing that swelling inflammation? Some of that does depend on the patient's tolerance. Um, but for the most part, I will start them on a basic HEP program. Some of those exercises they're already doing at home. So for example, straight leg races, which is the individual just lifting their leg in the air in all four directions within their brace. Locked. 
locked, right? And now I will observe this on their first visit, and if they're unable to maintain the knee extension during those exercises, we're either refitting the brace or giving them a strap to make sure that they're maintaining knee extension so we're not putting the graft at risk. And then a couple other exercises in order to activate the calf, start working on additional hip strengthening. So really just getting all those muscle groups activated. Because uh, initially after surgery, kind of globally, you're gonna see those muscles kind of shut down because that's what the body does in response to a trauma is try to protect that joint by not contracting muscles. So we wanna get everything firing again. Can I ask a, a couple questions? I guess so. What are your thoughts about cryotherapy or, or cold, cold, for people that don't know, that's cold therapy, ice and um, electrical stim. So I, I don't use the two together. Um, there's a lot of difference of a, different opinions and research with regards to ice. It helps the healing, it doesn't help the healing. When I was in school, I was taught that in general, ice can help push swelling out to a certain extent because what's happening is it's cooling the area, which is basically alerting the body that it needs to send new blood. When you send new blood to the area, it pushes old blood out. Now, there's other research now that tends to suggest that cold to the area can decrease muscle growth, which is really what we're trying to push in someone who's post-op. So for the most part, at this point in time, pain management is going to be a primary priority for me. So if the ice is helping to decrease their pain, which then allows them to do the exercises better, I'm going to use the ice. Perfect. So for the electrical stem, I use it in a neuromuscular re-education manner. I don't usually use it as pain management because I feel like ice can do just about the same in terms of pain management. And that's something they can easily apply at home without me having to walk them through the steps of setting up a device. Now that night might not be an opinion you see kind of across the board, but that's how I approach my patients post-operatively. Oh, I think that's great. You know, I always tell patients that, you know, so a lot of people think E-STEM is really kind of critical. And, you know, I think there's some varied literature on that. But, you know, the way that muscles work is you send a, a message from your brain through your spinal cord, down through your peripheral nerves and into the muscle. And the E-STEM kind of bypasses some of that neuromuscular kind of pathway. And I think that the sooner you can get the real method down and, and get that real normal neuromuscular transmission pathway back, the better. Um, but I do, I do believe that there is some reasonable literature that says that, you know, early on, you know, Easton can help, like you mentioned, you know, so I think that's, that's a great answer. And if, if you're talking about the nerves with regards to pain, the ice can typically be communicated faster to the brain in terms of decreasing perceived pain. So I tend to use Easton a lot more to help re-educate those neuropathways, like you mentioned, yeah. instead of the, the pain reduction. Yeah. So they come to see you guys in the uh, in the ortho room um, one week post op. What are you guys looking for on your standpoint, Dr. Frey? I'm checking the swelling. That's kind of the biggest thing that I'm taking a look at. I'm taking a look at their wounds, the, the incisions. Typically, um, it's about seven to ten days out. Frequently, I'm getting stitches out. The majority of the time, I have the stitches on the inside, so there are no stitches to remove. But occasionally we will have some stitches on the outside, and if so, we're usually plucking those guys out. Um, I'll typically take them out of the brace, I'll check their calf. I want to make sure that there aren't any signs of a blood clot, a DVT. 
and then I'll do a pretty gentle range of motion of their knees, see what they can tolerate. I'll ask them to contract their quad, contract their thigh to see if they can contract it, to see if they still have a total shutdown or if it's beginning to wake up for them. And, um, you know, I think there's a, there are different philosophies here, but I'll usually do uh, one of our one of our stress tests on it, a Lachman. I don't go crazy, but I'll do a little Lachman and just make sure it's nice and stable, it's nice and tight. Those are the, the, the main things that I'm that I'm taking a look at. Um, I will frequently, it depends on the situation, sometimes we'll get them into PT uh, before I see them the first time, and lots of times um, we'll wait until I see them, and then I get them over to PT, so I'll make sure that we have everything in place, make sure that PT is set up and we're ready to go. But th those tend to be my um, my main um, checkpoints. Where, where do we go to next? Do, do we want to talk about like zero to three months of, of, of rehab? Is it is it too early to jump to three months? I think yeah. six weeks. Six weeks. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think so. <clears throat> a couple of things that I would maybe like to hear Jess's opinion on, and I think it'd be important for us to talk about, would be um, as you try to work on strength. There's a couple of different types of modes of, of strength training, um, isometric training. Maybe you can explain what that means. Uh, eccentric um, strengthening, and, and you know, and there's some you know suggestion about maybe eccentric strength training is is uh, okay to start. You know, two to three weeks out. Um, isometrics you could probably start from the beginning, uh, and then maybe you could also talk about open chain versus closed chain. Mm -hmm. You didn't say it, I was going to. Yeah. So a lot That's a lot there. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot so there. Absolutely. I, maybe I should start <laughs> so, with definitions yeah, first. Perfect. And then we can kind of go through chronologic order as isometric. best possible Jess, what is isometric? <laughs> Thanks for keeping Nice, Jason. <laughs> the quick and easy. So isometric means that the muscle is contracting, but it's not moving. So if you were to hold your hand against your opposite forearm and try to make a bicep, your bicep move or do a bicep curl but resist it, your bicep is contracting, but there's no actual movement at the joint. Concentric is when you're actually contracting the muscle and it's shortening. So that means on that bicep curl, when your arm is lifting up, that's a concentric movement. And on that lowering portion, the muscle is lengthening as it's working. A lot of people call that the negative part of a, of a, you know, the historically the meatheads in the gym will call that a negative. That's the negatives. Yeah, yeah. What would be a example of a quad strengthening isometric exercise that you might be doing in the first two weeks of rehab? I don't do a ton of strict isometric movements in the first two weeks, but the closest that we do to that is what we call a quad set. But for a lot of individuals, because they're lacking knee extension, it does tend to look like a little bit of a concentric movement. Mm. But for the sake of the podcast, we'll say that this individual has zero knee extension, so it would be an isometric exercise. They would be laying straight, and there's a slight towel roll under their knee just to give them a little bit of feedback, and they're basically just contracting the quad. So the quad is contracting, and essentially there's not much movement at the knee, and that would be that example of the isometric. How important is full extension at this stage? It's... Did you our, mention this or no? No, we didn't. Yeah, I, I there. There's a lot of definitions really thrown but around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's the, the biggest priority at this point in terms of yeah. range of motion. So a lot of times people are concerned that they're only going to 90 degrees flexion. I'm not concerned about someone's lack of flexion until we almost get them out of the brace, to be honest. The knee extension is going to be the most important because that's the biggest range of motion that can inhibit your ability to walk with a normal movement pattern or walk with a normal pattern. And from, from a certain standpoint, to be honest with you, 
it's easier to get flexion back later on if we need to than it is to get extension back. Absolutely, and that's what I tell them. So flexion is gonna come as you work more into functional activities like standing and sitting into a chair while you're going out to dinner. You don't typically do a lot of things that force you into extension unless you're actively thinking about it yeah. if you're already lacking that range. And that's one of the reasons I think, you know, I, I lock people post-operatively in the brace. You know, I let them take it off to, for therapy sessions and for showering and whatnot, but um, I lock them straight and actually a little bit of hyperextension in the brace if the brace allows for that because of this reason. And, you know, cause otherwise a lot of people go home, it's uncomfortable to be fully straight after surgery. Your knee's swollen, it's painful, things right. are tight. The most comfortable position is with a little bit of a bend. And so if you don't have that mandatory brace keeping you straight, people go home and they tend to want to put a little pillow behind their knee Tell them all the and time. that's how they that. stay. And, yeah. you know, you do that for a week or two and all of a sudden your knee doesn't want to go straight. So that's why we're not trying to torture our patients when we do that, we're trying to encourage that that motion. What happens if you let a patient go through continued treatment that doesn't have full extension? I mean, is there a point where you don't ever get it back or? It's very possible. I mean, I tried to stress that so early on that I've made the joke once to one of my patients that the first two weeks after post-op is kind of like those episodes of scared straight, like we're going to get your knee straight because we have to. Because um, I've seen individuals that have come to me after their post-op ACL rehab many years down the road and they're like, my knee still doesn't straighten. It's like, well, now at this point, we're two, three years out. I don't know how much I can do. If you're and none of those patients were performed at Reconstruction. Correct. Right. Correct. This was all at other facilities. That's they right. went elsewhere. Um, but there is that possibility. And that's why we don't just tell you these things for our own health. It's strictly to get you back to the sport or the activity you want to get back to. Where are we at now? Uh, eccentric, you talked about um, open and closed chain. Open and closed chain. Yes, so open and closed chain is just a fancy way to say whether you're weight-bearing or non-weight-bearing through the leg. So if we talk about the knee specifically, if you're standing and going into a squatting position, your knee is bending, your feet are on the ground, this is a closed chain activity to work on quad strength, for example, depending on how you're setting up that exercise. Another way to work on quad strength in a open chain would be to have someone seated on the table and straightening their knee so their foot is not contacting the ground. It's essentially open from the ground, open chain, but we're still working on quad strength. So a couple different ways that you can work that. Now when you're early on post-op ACL, there's different research that suggests that different ranges of motion you want to switch into an open versus a closed chain. So typically closed chain is gonna be a little bit safer early on because you're getting that load for the joint, which is encouraging muscle activation around the knee, which is protecting the graft. Whereas that open chain exercise that I mentioned where you're fully extending your knee is a big no-no to do early on because you're putting too much stress through the ACL. Through the graft. Yeah, yes. it's, it, you know, I always kind of, I don't, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I always kind of explain to patients that, you know, when you're closed chain, you're, you're you're forcing all your stabilizing muscles and other parts of your, in your hip and your core and your and your, your thigh and your, in your lower leg, to contract around your knee, which helps protect it. Right. Whereas when you're doing an open chain exercise, it, it creates a lot of kind of uh, shear stress. It creates an abnormal motion in your knee because you're not forcing all those other muscles to stabilize. Well, and especially at this point where we know there's a strength deficit, you have to rely more on that graft, which is not what we want to do at this point in rehab. Yeah, what about down the line? Absolutely, we want to do it down the line, but at 
that point, that graft has fully maturized or has fully healed into its new home. So it is more like your original ACL graft than it was pre-op or initially post-operatively. Yeah. So now we can start to put that stress on it, which can actually help it feel a little bit stronger and actually work better with the muscles that are around the knee. Who gives that uh, the, the uh, thumbs up to transition from closed chain to open chain? Is, is that your... Jessica. Yeah. yeah I was our line like, therapist. Yeah. Because you're seeing them every day or two or three and let me, times I would week. like to make a point here. This is one of the great things about having them right next door. Right is that we know them, we trust them. We've, we've talked about protocols. Jessica and Steve worked um, for, I think, 10 years on a um, ACL <laughs> rehab protocol. It felt like 10 years, it felt like Re that. rehab protocol. And so we, we know we all have the same knowledge base or you know close to the same knowledge base. At least we share a lot of information. And you know one of the scariest things prior to having you know, people like this next door and on, you know, on site at our offices is we don't know where some of these people are going. We don't know what rehab specialists are taking care of. I mean, we didn't know what their experience level was with ACLs versus, you know, low back pain versus total joint replacement. So it's, it's really kind of refreshing to know that the people that are taking care of our patients now know more than we do about it. And, and they're well-versed and do a good job of it. I think a prime example of that, that level of communication we have would be walk through our break room at lunchtime yeah. and when, when when all our providers are enjoying their 30 minutes of kind of time to you know catch their breath um i mean there's basically just an open line of communication about somebody you know about hey while i you know hey dr b while you're back here i got a question for you and then it just starts a whole uh train of conversation that just leads to more discussion about the yeah. topic yeah, you know. and we could do a podcast from the break room right. at lunch. I mean, which is partly where this yeah, whole idea yeah, came from. Right. It was like, man, we should just be recording this stuff, you yep. know, and that's where it all came from. But to bring it back to your question, exactly what Dr. Bernardini said, here is a very unique experience where we get that ability to discuss together. But ultimately, that decision to progress comes from the surgeon because they're the one that put in the ACL graft. So while the PT might be seeing that individual more frequently during the week the surgeon is the ultimate one that helps give that go ahead to the next stage which is important for patients to understand coming into therapy but we have that unique ability here for everyone to discuss it. so six weeks uh, i'll typically get rid of the brace so that's i see patients back at six weeks and you know my my goal for them uh assuming it's an isolated acl is that they have no swelling and they have full motion equal to the other leg. Yeah. That's, that's I think, a, a good goal. That must they, be a, quite the accomplishment for them to know that they're out of the brace. They get very excited. Yeah. I've had that's a lot a big of people freedom. walk yeah. through our door, like carrying their brace like yeah. Rocky. Yeah. Like take um, this from me, yeah. Yeah, I had multiple people tell me they were gonna throw it out their window along the highway <laughs> or burn it when they got home. It's, it's a good feeling to get out of the brace. But if, for me, the big push is that four week point, I want zero on your knee extension. And by six weeks, we should really be pushing for as much full to normal flexion at, at the opposite side. So normalized range of motion and no smelling. Yep, I agree. And I always encourage patients at this point, you know, strength will come, motion's the critical thing at this point. Cause we, we have a window of time to get motion back and scar tissue wants to form. and. We don't have to get into it. There's a concept, something called arthrofibrosis, which is really, really, really bad stiffness after surgery. 
Um, and you know, some of that stiffness can become permanent if you don't address it early enough. So I think that's why we've all been talking about um, motion as a priority in the first six weeks, even though we're, we're hitting on strength. The, the strength will always come, typically, if we can get full range of motion back in the first six weeks. So now we're gonna move into the second six weeks. Yeah, so as you progress into the six weeks, as long as we're talking about someone that's met those range of motion goals, now that strength component sort of starts to become more of a priority. Range of motion is still there because obviously we don't want you to forget about the fact that we need to maintain those range of motions that we have now achieved. But we now wanna start pushing strength because we're out of the race, we're able to do a lot more, and we can start progressing into those open chain exercises that we talked about before because that graft has started to heal. Muscles are starting to get a little bit stronger. We've restored range of motion. So now we can start to progress you. And this is where we start to have a little bit more fun because we can do more functional based movements like starting a small step up. Things that actually make that individual feel like they're making gains within their rehab program. We're still pretty careful at this point. Absolutely. Yeah, we're always careful. So that's <laughs> always the priority is you want to move people as quickly but as safely as you can. So that safely comes from those healing timeframes on the graft and also what that person can tolerate in terms of pain and what their strength is. So if their strength isn't ready to handle a step up at six weeks, we're not going to do it, even if the protocol says we should be. Sure. So you always want to check in on the individual. Yeah, and technical proficiency in movement, I think is really, you guys do a wonderful job of that. Um, and we know that because we see you work with people. But, you know, to say step up, on a on a on a step or a, a, a you know a box is there can be a dramatic range of of the way people can handle the ability to do that so if we're still having some of those risk factors that we talked about before they're going into a knock knee position or they're quad dominant or you know all these things we don't want to we want to make sure that you know proficiency of movement and technical ability is important so i think uh that's an important thing those i think are the fine points that end up giving us really really good results whereas you know, some therapy locations may not have that um, body of knowledge or experience about what, how should this person be moving instead of just saying that they're doing this task. Are they doing this task correctly? Are they doing it with the right technique? Are they not applying stress to the graft during whatever phase of healing we're in? And to that point, that's why when I say step up, I'm not talking about a true step. We're talking about two inches. Sure. So we start with two inches you're comfortable controlling the range through that to it step up and then eventually down the road you get to a step down so that when we put that eight to ten inch step in front of you your brain says it's too high but your body says i got this mm -hmm. and i had that happen recently with the patient so absolutely it's all about how you're doing that movement not just what movement you're doing do, do you address any of these psychological factors how do you handle the fear you know, the, the, you know, patient thinking that, you know, like you said, you got this kind of thing. Do you, how much of a psychologist are you? This, this as, was my, this was my exact next question. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's critical. Well, uh, well, you, and Jason, you, you handle this stuff too. That's what I was going to ask you, like the psychological investment and Dr. Bernie D touched on it earlier in tonight's episode, but when you, is that the biggest component? I mean, are we running through frustration zero to 12 weeks? Is it 12 24 weeks. I address frustration during prehab. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm speaking a lot from my own own treatment. So everyone might handle a little bit differently, but my own experiences have shaped me to where 
I know that the psychological component could easily become 100% of their rehab if we don't address it properly. So when, honestly, when you see me rehab, I kind of sit you down. I'm like, look, this is going to be frustrating. And I'm here for that, right? You, you signed up for this surgery. You focus on what your knee feels like. If you're frustrated, if you feel like you need to give up at any point, you let me handle that and I will address those things. Those are not things that you need to worry about. That's what I will take. So every point of the road, I'm checking in with them and letting them know, like, I'm not gonna have you do something that isn't safe for you to do and that I didn't already think you could handle. Because that psychological component for an ACL injury, because they're going to be dealing with that for sometimes a year plus, depending on what the injury type was, is so, so important. And it really kind of sets them up for their whole rehab, depending on how they are in those first four weeks. So that first four weeks could change what they look like at six to nine months. That's a big factor right there, right? That 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 early window, you're really, really doing what you're supposed to do and doing things correctly earlier on. Sometimes, sometimes if, if that window starts to close on you, then it's more of an uphill battle the rest of the way. You know, and I think the confidence and the proficiency of the providers spills over to the patient, you know, and knowing that you've got a team of people that specialize in these procedures, specialize in this rehab, and the recovery and return to play and, and you know and that's one of the really nice things about the team that we have here. Jess, when do you see the patient um like we had just talked about like these kind of valleys of frustration the psychological aspect of it at what point does it really spike back up when do they get reinvested in it is it when the exercises get a little bit more complicated less tabletop stuff when do you see like their kind of excitement get back into things so i think that that kind of peaks and valleys throughout the rehab. So initially you're gonna see a bigger drop right after surgery. And then when they start to get to move their knee a little bit, so once they're able to unlock their brace, so they're able to flex their knee a lot more, they're walking without crutches, you see it go back up, they get excited because now they're walking more normally, they're seeing that progress. And then now we're at that four week, five week point where they're still in the brace. So now they're getting frustrated again. The brace comes off, they get excited. And then in that six to eight week point, which depending on the research that you read, some say is the most vital point for the healing of the graft, they're doing pretty much the same things in rehab every day with the occasional little bit of increase in difficulty, but for the most part, we're somewhat static because we're trying to protect the graft. So six to eight weeks, you're like, oh man, this is boring. I'm not changing anything. And then it spikes back up at eight. And then you sort of see it again every couple months because that's when you get to progress the rehab so but every couple months how long does this actually take to recover <laughs> that's you're, a lot <laughs> honestly you're looking at a solid year of rehab and then a lot of times people will say that after two years of post-operatively that's when they really feel like i don't think about my knee anymore. right right so, that was just somebody cheering in the background. Yeah, they're happy the about Jess's yeah. answer. <laughs> so again, four months is when a lot of times we let we let people start to run if they're meeting all the criteria that they need to be meeting. 
And then six months, nine months, and then a year are those big points where you see bigger changes in what they're allowed to do as long as their control is keeping up with the activity. One of the most common questions that I get is when can I run? So we've adjusted the protocol here. So a little bit of a difference of opinion originally? Initially, when ACL research just, you know, recon excluded, just in general, people were saying you could start to potentially run at three months. Now there's a little bit of concern that there might be stress on the ACL graph that we're not really able to capture. So what we do here is at three months, depending on the discussions we've had with the individual as well as the surgeon, we'll start them in the alter G. What is an alter G? So, well, Dr. Frey loves the alter G. What is Maybe that? I that, love the alter G too. Where could someone find an alter G? Uh, specifically at Reconstructive Orthopedics <laughs> at 614 Lambs Grove. Um, so it's an anti-gravity treadmill. So what that means is I can unweight you a certain percentage. So typically that first time you're in the alter G, you're at 50% your body weight. We're just teaching. When is that? When are you putting them in there at 50%? Around between three and four months. Yep. So our goal with that is just to get you used to that movement again. So your 50% really, the, the strength component is not as much of a factor here, but we're already making sure you're meeting the goals that you need in order to full body weight run. But that's not happening until that four to five month period. Yeah. And again, I think that's an excellent opportunity for us to, one of the cool things about the Alter G is there's a uh, built-in camera um, and you know there's some foot, plate force, you know, analyzers and they let let us see how much stress they're putting on one foot versus the other, what is their stride length, uh, how symmetric, you know, their their gait and everything is. And uh, this is a really important part because, you know, this is where we start to look at the technical proficiency of their movement. If we go back to the first episode on ACL, we talked about, you know, 70 to 90% of ACL injuries are non-contact. So it's only the athlete and the ground. So there's something about the way they move. There's something about the way they land, absorb force, uh, something about their knee position that puts them at risk. And so when we start putting them on an alter G, you may be able to start to see some of these movement patterns. And this is a really critical time to be able to retrain these bad movement patterns through you know what we describe as neuromuscular training programs. And um, so I think that's a that's a cool thing. But I, I see that all the time. People ask me that all the time. And this is another one of those points where we're checking in with them psychologically, because if I say, hey, we're gonna run on the Ultra G, 50% non-weight bearing, and they're tentative, that tells me there's something else we need to talk about. Because if they don't feel ready at that point, then there's other things that we didn't address earlier on. Right. They should feel more than ready yep. to get in the altergy at that point. What are some common examples of why they don't feel ready that you that you've been like that you would have heard from your patients? So in general, I've just had people say like, I I don't know, I don't trust it. And when I say why don't you trust it, it comes down to the initial injury being non-contact, so they don't even know why they were injured in the first place. So then we review the things that they've done, the fact that they're doing a single leg squat to an elevated surface, which is all of their body weight on one leg, which is basically what running is, just repetitive single leg mini squat. And once we start to give them the facts, they are able to take that and say, you know, I think I think I am ready. But a lot of it is just that mind, mind piece of, I don't think I should be ready because I know what this knee has been through. So it's just not trusting the leg. So there's three, you know, there's some literature that shows that there's three common 
psychological factors that affect an athlete's ability to want to progress and perform. So one is something called self-efficacy, and it's basically your your ability to believe that you can control your your destiny, so to speak. That you have you have control over the the future of this rehab program and your recovery and that's an important factor some people don't feel that some people just inherently don't feel that yeah so i intentionally i already know when someone comes in the exercises i want to do but i'll ask them like hey do you want to do bridges or you want to do this or do you want to try something new today so it's still feeding the program yeah but every visit they're getting parts of that self-efficacy to help address that that another one is something called locus of control and that basically is there's certain people that have this sense of I'm in control of you know my outcome or my death. It's similar to self-efficacy, but it's not exactly the same thing. I'm not a psychologist, so don't please don't ask me too many questions about this. But <laughs> and then there are other people that just feel like, well, it's and I'm not really in control of this. It's, it's other factors that are going to affect how how my recovery grows, and I'm, I just accept it. And uh, it's been shown that people that have this sense of you know they're, they're in control of their destiny, they control the outcome, they have a sense of of power over this. Those people do better. And those people have more confidence and they progress probably easier for you. And then the last one is fear of re-injury. And that's just, a you know, a, I think everybody understands fear of injury. But those three things have actually been shown to kind of correlate with outcomes and self, you know, reported outcome satisfaction down the line. We've gone through a lot of the, the, the rehab and I think we forgot to mention right to get go. It's one of, one of the controversial potential topics and what, what, what one of the things that helps send us down this road is uh, Kawhi Leonard's injury, which seems to be sort of this borderline injury, right? Mm-hmm. He had a partial ACL tear. We don't really know a ton of details on it, so there's, so for us to talk about it, there's clearly going to be a lot of speculation. But it's kind of that in-between, right? Partial tear, do you rehab it? Do you reconstruct it? It sounds as though, from the information that we could, could kind of dig through, they did a partial repair. Mm. So, so kind of this in-between thing. Um, I don't know, Brad, what, what are your thoughts on that initially? Yeah, so we talked on the last episode that the ACL has two functional bundles, and we literally look at those as two separate important parts of the same ligament. One controls straight translation, the other one controls a rotational component. They're both very important. Uh, there's some thoughts that the rotational part of the ACL may be more important for pivoting twisting sports for obvious reasons. It is possible to have a single bundle tear, and we've probably all seen those. Those are pretty rare. But if you have a single bundle tear, the unfortunate reality is that that tear still results in a complete loss of that part of the function of the ACL. So it's still disabling. In 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 an athlete like Y, you're still gonna have an issue with playing hoops at a high level. So, you know, this brings up kind of an interesting concept that, that we, I would say probably back in the 2006, 2005, six era, um, a, a pretty prominent orthopedic surgeon out of uh, University of Pitt, uh, Freddie Fu, mm-hmm. who is kind of a well-known uh, orthopedic sports medicine doc, developed this double bundle reconstruction technique. So currently, when we do an ACL reconstruction, we do a single bundle. Uh, I would say that's kind of the standard of care. The standard, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, so when this double bundle technique came out, I, I actually, and yeah, I was actually lucky enough, he came back for one of our alumni weekends at uh, my fellowship, and I was lucky enough to learn directly from him at, at a cadaver lab um, with my fellowship uh, partner and we we learned how to do these double bundles so you're separately reconstructing those two parts and there's 
lab-based studies on this fancy robot that they have at Pitt that shows that it creates a more stable environment for the knee. But unfortunately, those studies didn't correspond to a clinical outcome difference. So, you know, patients didn't necessarily feel more stable. They didn't necessarily perform better. And so we've kind of gotten away from that a little bit because it's a little bit more of a complex surgery. It takes a little bit longer to do. It makes it harder to redo the surgery if God forbid they re-tear, which we know that injury risk from our last episode too. So, I mean, you know, right, right along those lines, I think I mean, this is speculation. This is not based in science. But one of the concerns there is that with the two bundles, you, you, you tighten them in different uh, different positions. You tighten uh, one of the bundles where the knees are straight, another one of the bundles where the knees is flexed. And so, in a sense, you're taking, you know, I typically like to get this, you know, nine millimeter graph. One of, it's a nice thick graph, a lot of collagen. Sometimes it's 10 millimeters. Anything less than eight has yeah. been shown to correlate with increased re re exactly. re injury. I don't, I don't like it for it to be less than eight ever. So, so typically you wind up with this, this nine millimeter graph and do plot tendon, nine millimeters, frequently 10 millimeters. If you're doing a double bundle, you're essentially creating two small graphs. Right. So yeah, maybe you're okay while you're at 30 degrees, yeah. but if you're at full extension, you're relying on one five millimeter graft. And if you're at 90 degrees of flexion, you're relying on another five millimeter graft. And, and great in the lab, but I don't know that it is completely borne out in the, in the clinical world. Right. And, and it does, it adds time to the surgery, it adds complexity, it adds um, um, certainly certain uh, subtleties to the surgery. So I, th I agree with you 100% that I think the standard is anatomic single bundle. Right. But is there a role for repairing or reconstructing one of those bundles in this particular Kawhi Leonard injury? Yeah, so if somebody has a single bundle tear and they're high level athlete, I, I've done single bundle reconstruction, single bundle reconstructions before. I, uh, you know, we talked about repair. Right. I'm not an advocate of repair. I think the results right now are not showing that those are doing well. I agree. So, but I have done single bundle reconstructions. Jess, I, it's probably something you haven't seen. I don't know that we've done a ton of them here at Recon. I haven't, and I actually- And I don't know how you'd rehab it different. I personally, just thinking about it, think if I wasn't being sent a protocol from someone who has altered it for that type of surgery, I would default to an ACL reconstruction protocol. Because then I'm not having to worry about which bundle is tense during which movement. Right. And that way I'm, potentially being maybe a little more conservative than I need to be, but there's no harm in doing that exactly. with that. But my question for the two of you is, is what, and we can talk about a hypothetical person, yeah. so to speak, but this if, is the if, hypothetical yeah, situation. If someone's coming to you know. with only one of those bundles torn, mm -hmm. what is the, the pro to doing the, the repair versus doing the reconstruction. Is there something or is it just them trying to save potential time in his rehab because he's a high level athlete? Or do we just not really know? Well, again, the thing we talked about last time was, you know, we know these, these collagen fibers stretch before they tear. And so theoretically, if you repair stretch tissue, it's gonna be loose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you're right. The perceived advantage is shorter rehab time, quicker recovery. And sometimes what they'll do, the newer version of this is to include something called an internal brace, which is essentially a very strong suture, which, which will hopefully take some of the stress off of the repair while the repair heals, which is not something that was done the first time orthopedic surgeons went down this road, whatever it was, I mean, 30 years ago, when, when they felt at an exceedingly high rate. 
So you're trying to to let that individual maintain as much of their original tissue as possible, essentially. Yeah, versus, the question mark is, is but I, I, I will I yeah. will okay. say most repairs of damaged ligaments have inferior outcomes to reconstructions. If you look at you know, lateral collateral ligament, MCL, mm-hmm. most of those outcomes are not as good as a reconstruction. Careful outcome. with MCL, because frequently we're not even... Re- no, totally yeah. agree. Most of yeah, the time yeah. that's non-operative. Yeah. But if it's, a, if it's a one that you have to re... If you have to address surgically... Right. Generally, one I would say the, the standard now would be, right. yeah, it would be a, a reconstruction. So I guess we should probably bookmark this and then we reconvene yeah. in five to ten years. And exactly. See then, we'll right? see what happens. Exactly. Surgically and, and rehab. Um, I want to ask one more. I think uh, this has been a great conversation. I want to ask one more, I think, big topic that we should probably get to, which would be, and it's hard because I don't think there's an answer to this, return to play criteria. Um. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. So, mm. this, a lot of it is time dependent. And, so and I would also say that when I was in PT school, which feels longer ago than it actually has been, mm. uh, the criteria has already changed, and that's been in that you know five-year time frame we've talked about. So, what I was originally taught is we rely on hop testing, which is your what is hop testing? So you have. <laughs> Right in there. Just, just jump right in. So you have a single limb hop test for distance, and you're comparing all of these to your non-op side. So in this scenario, the non-op side is considered sort of like the ideal for that individual. So you have your single leg hop for distance. You have your triple hop for distance. You have your six meter hop test, which is for time. And then you also have your crossover hop, which ends up being three diagonal hops on one leg for distance. And then you are also looking at quad strength being 90%. So all of those tests, you want 90% or better of the unoperative side. So there's still research that really supports assessing quad strength, but they're also now starting to look at hamstring so that we're capturing that posterior chain. And now instead of doing that sort of standard hop testing, there's newer research that hasn't really hit the rehab side of things much where they're starting to put more emphasis on a vertical hop because that's generating power which we know that it's great if you're strong but if you can't use that strength what good is it in a functional activity so they're starting to look more on vertical strength and power and and how you're controlling that limb so for me personally i still do the hop testing i still look at quad strength all of those things because it gives me more objective measures to say here are eight different things why i think you're ready versus here are a couple yeah but the other thing that i'm looking at is how well do you control that leg when we're cutting or doing a single leg controlled eccentric movement. So I have a couple things that I look at in terms of trunk angle, knee angle, which is what we referred to earlier as knee valgus, and how, basically just how are you loading through that limb? And we put varying degrees on that to see if you're appropriate or not. Yeah. And then the big thing that sometimes is overlooked is what's the readiness of the individual? Because if they're meeting all those points, let's let's say they're 100% across the board and they're not ready, they're already set up for a higher risk of re-injury just because mentally they're not there. Yeah, and that's where some people are advocating for psychological testing. And and there's different measures of psychological readiness for sport and things like that. You know, another interesting thing that's kind of been talked about recently is should we measure all athletes the same with regard to their requirements for those those tests? 
So we talk about greater than 90% strength, which has always been the standard for return to you know activity or you know for us to clear them. But should we be holding them to a greater, you know, an equal 100% strength versus the opposite side for return to sports that involve high risk activities like soccer, you know, basketball, lacrosse, things where there's a lot of pivoting, twisting, um, sports that we know have a high incidence of re-injury for ACL. We talked about re-injury rates at our last at our last podcast a little bit. And there's some people that are now starting to break out those strength numbers and their limb symmetry indexes to 100% versus 90% for, for sports that maybe don't have such a high re-injury risk. And um, Steve, I don't know if, if you want to comment a little bit on one of the questions that people ask us at about the seven, eight month time frame is, when do I get my, my, my brace? When do I get my sports brace? Do you want to talk about your thoughts yeah. on that? So typically that's, that's right around the time that I do it, right? Um, I don't like to do it too, too early because there's a lot of quad atrophy. There's a lot of quad, sh quad shutdown. Um, I, the brace isn't going to fit by the time they get to the, you know, by the time they're getting back on, on, on the field. And it's also when they're, they're really increasing their activity level and we want to get that, 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 that brace on them. So for me, I'll, I'll typically, I, I see patients often, you know, I'll see them again at the three month mark. And then lots of times I won't see them again. Sometimes I'll see them six weeks later, but if everything's going really smoothly, lots of times I'll see them again at the six month mark, a big three month block right there. And at that six month mark, because I know it takes a little bit of time sometimes to get that brace, that's when I usually initiate the process. So right around week number, uh, month number seven, month number eight, whatever it is, ideally closer to month number seven. We're, we're getting them fitted, we're getting that, that brace on them. So what if it's a little guy like me yep. who had to be fast and stay away from big guys, and I say, you know, Doc, I think this brace is gonna slow me down a bit. I think it's gonna take away some of my, my mojo. Do I have to wear it? Yeah. What do you So what are your thoughts? I don't think there's a true consensus across the board on this. I think it varies from, from doc to doc. I think there's, this is another one where uh, studies aren't um, entirely, um, there's not an overall consensus. So my typical protocol or my typical protocol is for that first year back, that you're back playing sports, I want you in the brace. It's sort of a belt and suspenders. Um, there are people who can't stand it. There are people who absolutely love it. On rare occasion, if somebody cannot stand it, because I don't have definitive evidence that this is the end all be all gonna make the difference, I can occasionally let that slide, but I really push people pretty hard that um, I think that this is beneficial, that this is helpful. Even if it's just a reminder that, hey, you know, you had the ACL injury and it's just a reminder in your everyday activities when you're out there practicing or participating because you're aware of the brace. Yeah. I think it's a worthwhile thing to have on. Yeah, I think that's a controversial topic. What are your thoughts on it? If, so I actually redirect the question to the patient and I say, do you, do you want a brace? And I, I believe, you know, there's studies out there that show that you can still rupture an ACL in, in an ACL prevention Absolutely brace. It's probably best at preventing catastrophic MCL injuries. Um, if you're an interior Which lineman. See, yeah, all the yeah, linemen. Yeah, if you're an interior game, lineman, I think it's reasonable. But specialty players and being the next kind of specialty guy in, in yeah. football, I would have had a really hard time wearing one of those and, and getting back. And maybe that's, maybe that would have been good for me if I would have torn my ACL that maybe I'm, you know, you don't get back too quick. Maybe it's important, but but I I, I kind of gauge the, the player's readiness. You know, we talked about readiness earlier and many of them will say, I don't think I need it. 
And if they say that, I, I kind of believe they're ready for it. And I think if we did a good job at rehab and PT and we don't let them get back too soon before they really have those return to play criteria, then I'm, I'm okay if they, if they don't wear it. All right. All right. What are your thoughts, Jess? I mean, I think I'm kind of along the lines of Dr. Bernadine with this. Um, so it's a great answer, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> so functionally, from what I'm seeing, if I feel like they're strong enough, um, I'm going to kind of push it back on them again and be like, look, we've done all these things. Do you feel like you need it? Because typically at this point, that brace is kind of just a little bit of a crutch for them to feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, but if, if we've done our jobs appropriately on the rehab side up until this point, what will happen is what happened to me recently where someone came and said, hey, I got this sports brace. What do I do with it? And I was like, that's kind of up to you yeah. at this point. You know, we've given you the, the strength the confidence in the leg, but you're still aware of what happens. So that's always my thing. I want you to be confident in the leg, but I want you to respect right. the surgery. So that you've I had done. a I had a great situation the other day. I, I was walking through the energy lab, and, and our our head you know strength guy, Mike Vitas, comes up, and we have uh, an athlete in there that's getting ready for um, college sports. It's going to be her first year, and and she had a knee brace, and he came up to me with her immediately in front of me and said is there a structural reason that she needs to wear this brace? Meaning, can we get rid of this because she's fine? Yeah. <laughs> she, does she need this for her leg or does she need this for her head? And the reality is she didn't need it for her leg. And you know, she and I looked at each other and I said, no, there's not a structural reason. And there was this look of relief that came over her and it was great because you know what? I would say for the last three months, she did need it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't for her leg, it was still for her. Yeah, and you'll, you'll see that. And she lot. was ready now. She's ready. So it was great. It's kind of neat to see that. I would like to thank you guys for being on the last show. You were. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Uh, um, I mean, I, I was about to say that's probably going to wrap things up. We're probably nowhere close to being able to wrap this I don't know that you topic. ever wrap this topic There's up. There's so many things you could keep discussing mm -hmm. in like so many times. Hey, Dr. Frey, would you have guessed three months ago when we were brainstorming that? a topic like ACL rehab would be over an hour and 10 minutes. That's discussion. a big one. I, who, who would have imagined? And, and this is on the heels of ACL injuries, yeah, right? This like, is like the second, episode. second week in a row. Right. But yeah, of course, this is the one that we could talk about forever and ever. And we can get really into the weeds on it. There's a lot of controversies around it. There's, you know, you know, 10 million studies on it. Right. So, so yeah, no, no. Uh, to be honest with you, actually, you know, I think I would have guessed that, that it wouldn't have been that surprising for us to be able to talk about it for so long. I do want to say, um, I know we've kind of overrun it here, but, you know, we've been giving updates along the way about uh, Drew Robinson and the Drew Robinson story. And, and, and you know, uh, most recently, most recent report that, I, that I've seen at uh, Sacramento is that he has actually retired at this point. And I, you know, I've, I've spoken that I, I think that the Giants were a class organization to give him a chance, right? And and obviously they were they they, they stood the game, right? If it worked out well, they they get, they're getting a good player, probably for less expensive than you would otherwise. But but they gave him a chance, and um, and now they've done another class thing where it doesn't appear that he's been able to 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 really maintain a spot on that team. So now he's gotten a job in their front office. He's officially retiring. He's gotten a job in their front office as one of their mental health advisors. And again, like, like someone who's been through it, someone who's been thick, through the thick of it, someone who can probably really relate to someone else who's having a hard time. Just, yeah, another just class move by, by, by the organization. 
I, I think it's great, you know, and I think, um, I, I don't know that I would have expected this to happen in baseball before maybe football, you know, where we, you know, I it's think most football, amazing. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think foot, but, but it's how important is it that it, it happened in, in, in a sport other than one that maybe you would expect it in, you know, right. Are you, you know, saying I, from a CTE standpoint or, or yeah, you know, right. you know, you, you think of, of, you know, some of these issues, uh, depression, maybe secondary, to traumatic injury, right. you know, there's things we've seen and heard about in football. We've gotten some high-level athletes like Junior Seau and some of these guys that you know have have had these you know really horrible stories, and and that's kind of taken I think I think the spotlight of of mental health issues maybe in sport, right. but the reality is that mental health affects everybody. It's across and, the board. Yeah, it's across the board, and I think you know to have an organization like the Giants start to allow somebody that's been through it and maintain a position in their organization where they can help other athletes, I think is a, is a, is a you know, a trailblazing kind of trend. And I think right. it's great. Yeah. I feel like this is teeing up for another topic in the future because mental yeah. health has now popped up recently with gymnastics and yeah. track and right. so many different sports that, again, haven't really gotten a spotlight. Yeah. So, well, I, think, I think just like we said earlier, it, it doesn't seem that there's not a topic out there that we couldn't make an episode. No, about. you know, and, and, and it just seems to be ever evolving here. When we when we initially kind of thought about our ideas for the Energy Lab and and how we wanted to bring a, kind of an Avengers team of sports medicine specialists together, a big component of that was was uh, the mental resilience component, um, sports psychology, and and you know we had some resources for that, and but we that was a big part of it. I mean that was one of the pillars of of things that we wanted to address. So I think it's. I think it's great that higher profile uh, cases are getting attention. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Frey and Dr. Bernardino are referring to episode seven for all our listeners when we first introduced the topic of Drew Robinson. Uh, we encourage you guys to go back and listen if you're a little bit lost, maybe joined our show a little bit later on. But, um, what do you guys think? About to wrap it up for tonight? Wrap it up. I'll do it. All right. Before we go ahead and close out our tab, we want to thank our sponsors. Uh, let's start with Timber Reel Productions. We encourage you guys, uh, check out their website, timberreel.com. Check out their Instagram, check out their Facebook. They do amazing work uh, providing uh, photo and video content to uh, boost customer recognition for your brand, for your business. Uh, however, moving forward, Joe Warner, our one-site producer, no more family vacations. Yeah, um, I don't know we if need I to can. Hear, buddy. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I need you here. I don't know if I can do this on my own. We had some I'm, tech difficulties. I'm hoping that this is even recording. I really have no <laughs> idea. I, I really don't. I got to be honest. Halfway through, I thought that. Yeah, same. I, I've checked to make sure the red blinking light is on there about a dozen times. Nice, uh, Kyle Miller. You probably have your uh, work cut out for you with the uh, on-site editing as well. Uh, of course, Reconstructive Orthopedics with our eight locations, our focused on you approach, covering all of your orthopedic needs. The Energy Lab, South Jersey's premier sports performance destination, and Neck of the Woods Brewing Company for hosting us each and every week. These watermelon lime sours are going to have me back each and every week. That is so good. It's really good. I want to yeah. go grab one of those right I'm now not, as soon as we're done. I'm not usually a sour guy, but Same. those are the, top notch. And I know the the term like. Watermelon lime probably doesn't come off the best way, but I am probably gonna look in the fridge on my way out and see if they yeah. have canned. It does if it's hundred degrees outside. Perfect summer beer. Yeah, peace perfect. offering from my wife after telling the story. Yeah, yeah, you're in trouble. You go. We're gonna clip that out. She's never gonna know about it. 
Jess, Dr. Bernie, Dean, you can't thank you guys enough for joining us again. Uh, Dr. Frey and I will be taking next week off. We actually have our own vacation plan. Very nice. Uh, so we'll Separately. be catching. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Doctor. They're going to plan the next six months of uh, yeah. the Sports Medicine on Tap yeah. podcast. Thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you guys in a couple of weeks.